All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Sean Weiss. And again, as always, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to take a listen to what it is that I have to say on various topics. Today is hopefully what you will consider to be an interesting conversation because I'm going to be talking about building an effective OAG compliance program. I was sitting here this morning thinking about what's a topic that I have not talked about yet. And I went, oh, wait a minute. I'm the compliance guy, and I haven't talked about building an effective compliance program yet. So here we are. So I think the most important thing that we need to, out of the gate, take into consideration is the fact that we have to find a way of making sense of it all. And to do that, we need to understand where it is that we're trying to go. And to understand where we're trying to go, we need to understand where we have been. So this podcast today is meant to help you, the listener, understand the ins and outs of regulatory compliance and then how to use the information to successfully create a corporate compliance program. Now, in other podcasts, you've heard me talk about the DOJ's release of the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Really, I call that a prosecutor's playbook. And I've talked about in previous podcasts, various components of compliance, but I've never really gone into the steps required to build a successful compliance program. So that's what I'm really hoping to be able to accomplish during today's podcast. At the end of the day, I am a physician advocate. And my first responsibility is always to my clients, to ensure due process and a fair shake and level playing field. And I bring this up because over my 26 years of working in this industry and battling payers on behalf of my clients, I've been criticized, I've been demonized by some individuals at payers And before I say anything further, I want to make sure that everybody understands that I do not believe all who work for payers are evil or seeking to harm physicians, nor do I believe all providers are innocent in their attempts to seek entitlements for services rendered. But there are those within government and at the payers who focus on one thing and one thing only. And that is the bottom line. How much money are they able to recover? And are they able to make a narrative fit a potential crime? So today, I want to work through all of the ins and outs of 
a compliance program. And I always get asked, you know, why should I have a compliance program? I mean, one, it's just good business. But two, it helps us to minimize risk. Both financial risk and operational risk, as well as health and safety risks and reputational risks to the providers and to the organization. You know, I truly believe that a corporate compliance program creates a better image of the organization, not only in the community, but with regulators. And it helps to improve relationships and it creates a greater amount of trust internally with our members, with our employees, with our staff. I do believe that it creates an opportunity to mitigate some of the external pressures that hit practices from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, from the recovery audit contractors, the UPICs, um, from commercial payers. <clears throat> and it does assist in achieving meeting the expectations of the government, specifically the Office of Inspector General. Could it possibly reduce fines and penalties? Sure. But I think a corporate compliance program provides greater efficiency and improved outcomes, right? Because through a corporate compliance program, we should have better trained employees. We should have a higher level of morale in the organization. We should be able to eliminate uncertainty and confusion about roles and responsibilities within the organization. Our operations should have better outcomes. We should have better quality across the spectrum. And again, a corporate compliance program will help us in identifying and addressing problems early on so that we can reduce the likelihood of government audits and investigations. And as with all things, there's always consequences of noncompliance. Fines, penalties, legal fees, imposed compliance settlements, more regulatory and audit agency scrutiny, management time, and a an effort required to perform damage control, management turnover, lower faculty and staff morale, increased bureaucracy and lower efficiency, lingering effects, guilt by association. So a corporate compliance program can do a lot of good for an organization, but again, we have to have a purpose. We have to have a living, breathing document. We have to be demonstrating a good faith effort to comply, not only with the federal programs, but with commercial payers that we participate with as well. So it becomes critical for us to assess specific compliance risks. And we do that through a risk inventory and assessment. And you can do this in two stages. 
Stage one is your risk identification. I refer to this as a cradle to grave, meaning whatever can go wrong in the area of risk typically will if we're risk avoidant. Remember, this first stage is not an inventory of legal rules. This is based on event-driven episodes and plain language. So we want to first identify the risk areas and then second, identify specific risks within these areas. And then stage two is the performance of our risk evaluation. So there are some compliance plan fundamentals. And the fundamentals are your seven elements of a compliance program. And they're very simple. Written policies and procedures, the appointment of compliance professionals, effective training and education, effective communication, internal auditing and monitoring, enforcement of standards, prompt response. But there is an eighth step, and that's your risk assessment. And you can't forget to perform a risk assessment. So let's talk about leading versus lagging, these indicators. Leading is pretty simple. This is a prediction of your future outcomes. It's, it's by leading, we're, we're, we're able to create an assessment of our training effectiveness. We're able to assess the culture of the organization and employees' willingness to report concerns. By leading, we create a well-understood standard operating policies and procedures set. And we lay out clear and understood delegations. Now, compared to lagging, where compliance breakdowns have occurred. We want to put in place a couple of things. A mechanism for individuals to report potential problems. It could be a hotline. It could be a tip box. It could be any mechanism for individuals to feel comfortable that they can report a potential concern or problem at any point in time. But we also need to be able to put into place audits. And we need to take audit findings and we need to do something with those. Because ignoring problems during an investigation, when it becomes apparent, It leads to fines, litigation, sanctions, exclusions, 
So we could talk about this stuff as we continue to go throughout this podcast. Look, you need to have situational awareness. You need to have awareness of ethical and legal issues at play in your organization. There needs to be an internal perception of fair treatment among employees to ensure that they understand compliance applies across the board, irrespective of your title or your role in the organization. Again, as I talked about a moment ago, we need to have a willingness to report legal violations. And we need to have individuals who are knowledgeable of where to go with ethics or compliance questions. And again, there needs to be a perception that leadership cares about ethical conduct and that ethical behavior is rewarded and unethical behavior is punished at all levels. So because we have so many people transitioning into our industry, I get a lot of basic questions throughout the course of a workday. I've actually recently received a question from somebody saying, what exactly is compliance? And I paused for a minute to think, really? Am I being asked that question? And then I realized, yeah, absolutely I'm being asked that question. Why? Because so many people that are coming from other industries where compliance is not as prevalent as it is in ours aren't exposed to the things that we hear on a day-in and day-out basis. And as a result, there's a lack of fundamental understanding. And I don't think people have an appreciation for the regulatory landscape until after they've been working in this industry for a period of time that they've been exposed to all the things that the rest of us that have been doing this for 5, 10, 15, 20 years or more have been indoctrinated into. So for those of you that are new to the industry, let's talk about what compliance is. It's a voluntary program but it's something that is strongly recommended by the Office, office of the Inspector General. It is a complete set of policies and procedures as they pertain to a practice and its operations because it is designed to identify potentially abusive, deficient, or fraudulent activities and create methods or mechanisms and controls to assure that they are identified and corrected. The reason why we build a compliance program is that prosecutors from the Department of Justice have indicated that organizations that have an effective compliance plan in place are less likely to be prosecuted for fraud due to an inability in their mind, meaning the prosecutors, to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt of intentional deception even if there are mistakes detected. 
So another question that I get asked all the time is, you know, if something goes wrong in my organization, who's responsible? Who's liable? Well, the way that the statutes are written, it specifically says any entity who is found to be fraudulently submitting claims, not only the provider, could be held for both civil and criminal penalties. And they're significant because it's a per-claim penalty for each fraudulent claim submitted. And individuals could possibly be held liable for up to three times the amount unlawfully claimed. And criminal penalties, if imposed, can range from years in prison to hundreds of thousands of dollars per claim, including exclusion from the federally funded programs. So we got to take this stuff seriously. Now, rather than talking about benefits of a compliance program and you know, the various categories of policies needed. I want to I want to jump in and I want to talk about the development of effective policies and procedures. Right? Because this is how we build an effective compliance program. Remember, we have to ensure that policies and procedures are up to date and that they're user friendly. They're easy to understand. Again, I tell my clients all the time, keep it simple. There is no reason to pigeonhole yourself into doing something that you can't or know you won't be able to do as an organization. In fact, there's no problem with keeping them vague so that during an investigation, during questioning, you can pivot to be able to say, well, this is written in accordance with the statute, with a regulation, with a law. And our organizational interpretation is X. As opposed to saying, as an organization, we are going to blah, 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 blah. But knowing that you're never going to be able to comply with that. That's where people run into problems. So we have to talk about compliance standards and procedures. And to me, that means we have to establish compliance standards and procedures that are reasonably capable of reducing the prospect of erroneous claims and fraudulent activity while identifying any aberrant billing practices or any outliers in the organization. Remember, effective compliance standards will identify the organization's risk areas and establish internal controls to contain those risks. So we need to be able to indicate <clears throat> what is appropriate conduct with regard to all office operations and provide standards to prevent criminal conduct. Remember, if you do not have policies and procedures in writing, you don't have policies and procedures. Because there needs to be a corporate commitment. Meaning, if the top individuals in the company don't buy in, then nobody's going to buy in and the program's destined to fail. And as I said, your standards of conduct have to apply to all employees. This means everyone in the organization. Everyone must understand his or her role and sign it. 
I use a compliance pledge or a compliance attestation, and we could talk about that in just a little while. So once your policies and procedures are in place, what you want to make sure you're able to do is to measure the effectiveness of your plan. This means you want to develop benchmarks and goals within your teams that are participating in the compliance, such as your compliance committee, your compliance board, or your board of directors, any department managers that are engaged. But you have to make certain that you identify what it is that you specifically want to measure. Now, the appointment of a compliance officer. I cannot express how significant this is. Having the right compliance officer is like, is like having the right mechanic for your car. This is the individual that will ensure your compliance program remains a well-oiled, maintained machine. But before you appoint a compliance officer, you want to figure out <clears throat> just who they should be. Well, for me, a compliance officer is somebody who is loyal, they're responsible, they're trustworthy. But most importantly, this individual needs to have the authority to maintain the compliance program. I tell people a compliance officer is usually one of the most powerful and influential people within an organization, within a practice. And the only people or persons that a compliance officer answers to is the board of directors or the chief officer of the organization to ensure that the plan is effective. Now, a lot of organizations have the compliance officer report directly to general counsel. If you're a large organization and you, and you have legal in-house, but there are some issues with that. So that's something that you can kind of explore with your leadership to figure out who the reporting responsibilities should be to. But the most important thing about a compliance officer is that they must be able to delegate compliance responsibilities to appropriate individuals. They are, in most cases, considered to be a separate, unbiased part of the organization. So what are the roles of a compliance officer? Well, pretty simple. They're expected to know and administer all aspects of the plan. They're expected to ensure proper delegation of responsibilities to members of the staff and that it's done so in writing and to whom it is believed are the most honest, loyal, and capable of making the judgment called, uh, the judgment calls for uh, delegation of these, these responsibilities. They're responsible to consult with general counsel or outside counsel to obtain interpretations of gray areas. They have a responsibility to bring to the attention of the compliance committee or the board of directors all changes in circumstances that could reasonably suggest that the plan should be modified or changed to current standards. And we expect them to promptly carry out 
all duties assigned to the compliance officer by the plan and established through any steering committees. And finally, we expect them to report to the compliance committee or the board on at least a quarterly basis as determined by your compliance committee or any established policies that are created. So this moves us to the next aspect of our compliance plan. This is training and education. And it's critical to understand that the organization must communicate its standards and procedures to all employees, the professional staff, physicians, and they have to do it in a meaningful and effective manner by implementing an effective training program that explains the requirements of the compliance program and, and applicable laws. And keep in mind that compliance training can involve in-person training sessions, newsletters, or other written materials and or bulletins that you post on the board, in the break room, in you know various areas to where people are able to um, engage and, and see what the latest and greatest information is. So for me, when I'm looking at effective training and education, there are three steps for setting up educational objectives. And they're very simple. First is to decide who needs training, right? The coders, the billers, the compliance staff, physicians, administration. And then second, decide what type of training is best for the practice. And third, decide when and how much training is needed. It's, it's that simple. You notice how I did that little pause there? I'm, I'm not sure why I did that. I should have just said decide when and how much training is needed. All right. So what types of education should we be looking at? Well, we want to talk about the importance of the compliance uh, um, program and any provisions to that plan. We want to make sure we cover an overview as it relates to the providers. We want an outline of the education and the review process, specific risk areas to providers. We want to focus on um, provider billing guidelines, looking at general principles of coding and documentation of CPT and ICD-10 codes, the importance of proper CPT and ICD coding. We want to look at regulations by type of coding, right? We want to look at evaluation and management codes, especially the changes to the 2021 e codes for the office uh, codes, right? The 99202 through 99215. We want to look at admits to the hospitals, daily inpatient visits, new versus established patient visits, consults, uh, for those providers that still allow for those. Emergency room services, preventative medicine, incident to billing, whatever it is. Again, if you're providing procedures, we want to look at major surgery, you know, immediate availability, endoscopies, minor procedures in the office. We want to look at time-based billing. If you're psych, you know, psychi uh, psychiatric, uh, providing psychotherapy services, critical care services, counseling and or coordination of care. Education tied to diagnostic tests. Education tied to supervision 
of tests, teaching physician requirements, modifiers, all of those types of areas that pose a risk to the organization. So the next step in the compliance program is auditing and monitoring and its implementation. Folks, this step is crucial to the success of a compliance program. This process not only ensures the practice's standards and procedures are current, but also whether they are accurate and if the compliance program is working. We need to be able to ensure individuals are carrying out their responsibilities. So it's important the organization evaluate the effectiveness of its compliance program on an ongoing basis by monitoring compliance with its standards and procedures and by reviewing its standards and procedures to ensure they are current and complete. So, a couple of things, right? If we're talking about auditing and monitoring and we're talking about claims, we can do a review of pending claims not yet submitted. And we could use that to establish a benchmark that will be used in ongoing reviews to chart the success of the organization's compliance efforts. And I will tell you, counsel often recommend this be conducted under the attorney-client privilege, which I agree 100%. Now, under the United States Sentencing Guidelines and the Advisory Committee recommendations, there are two components. One, traditional auditing and monitoring to review or assess adherence to applicable laws, regulations, and policies. And second, the periodic evaluation of the effectiveness of the compliance program itself. Keep in mind that auditing and monitoring efforts should be tied to, meaning driven by, results of the risk assessment process. We want to look at the activities with the greatest risk as those should normally be our highest audit priority. And remember, the OIG acknowledges that full implementation of all components may not be feasible for all practices. So practices should adopt those components of a compliance program which are likely to provide an identifiable benefit based on previous history and specific billing problems or compliance issues. Because auditing and monitoring of the plan must be one of the seven steps adopted. And as I always say, it is advised that providers participate in other compliance programs, such as those at the hospital where they have privileges or other settings in which the physician or practitioners render services. So this takes us to the reporting and corrective action. Again, as I've said multiple times, we need to be able to encourage the reporting of noncompliance. This is through our code of conduct, a hotline, <clears throat> making sure that people understand that there is a non-retaliation policy within the organization, and again, through ongoing training. 
We want to make sure that we have clear policies and procedures regarding required reporting to regulatory agencies and other third parties, right? Accreditors, contract partners. We need to be able to establish and follow any sanction policies. We need to establish and follow procedures for communications with managers or supervisors and appropriate institutional officials, any department chairs if you're a large health system or a university faculty practice regarding non-compliance events. The risk areas for physician practices, there's so many, but a, a few to think about, right? So we could look at OIG compliance guidance for physicians, and we could focus on things like accurate coding and billing, or billing for non covered services, unbundling, failure to properly use coding modifiers, upcoding your services or under documentation. Focus should be on reasonable and necessary services. So looking at the medical record and orders and understanding that they should support the appropriateness of services. Your provider's documentation is absolutely critical. And then we want to focus on any improper inducements, kickbacks, self-referrals, financial arrangements with referral sources, joint ventures, leases, gifts, gratuities. These are all areas that we need to focus. Continue to monitor the OIG work plan. <clears throat> this way you can ensure compliance with Medicare assignment rules. Incident two, which is one of the biggest pain in the butts to deal with. Your evaluation and management services, infusion services, psychotherapy services, durable medical equipment services, you know, E&M. Pay attention to this stuff. But you also want to stay on top of your monthly exclusion checking, right? Because a growing number of state Medicaid programs are requiring monthly screening of current employees and contractors, and so are your Medicare managed care uh, participation agreements. There was a state Medicaid director who issued a letter instructing states to require providers to search the HHS OIG website monthly to capture exclusions and reinstatements that have occurred since the last search. So stay on top of this stuff. I think it's 33 states now that require it. As with all things, my recommendation is to have a policy on your monthly exclusion screening checks. And it needs to address that you do this prior to hiring and that you conduct these at least at a minimum on an annual basis. But again, to ensure compliance with the state, make sure you check your state laws. There's a couple of websites that are available for you to be able to do some checking. The first one is um, http colon forward slash forward slash exclusions dot oig dot hhs dot gov forward slash search dot html you may need to rewind this a couple of times to get all that and the other website is http colon forward slash forward slash epls dot arnet dot gov my recommendation is to check everyone, including the providers, 
your contractors, your employees. And, you know, visit the website www.healthcarecertified.com. So what does the road ahead look like? For me, I believe it's increasingly aggressive, both at the federal and state enforcement standpoint. The alphabet soup of government contractors looking for fraud, waste, and abuse is tremendous, and the list continues to grow. I think whistleblowers are driving a lot of the government priorities, <clears throat> and I think there's an increasing importance of comprehensive and aggressive compliance efforts to mitigate all of the different risks that an organization potentially faces. So what I hope is that we have been able to provide for you the steps to building an effective corporate compliance program. Again, as always, if you have any questions, any comments, any concerns, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can do so by emailing me at s. W-E-I-S-S -S at D-R-S-M-G-M-T dot com. And the final thing that I'll leave you with for your compliance programs is this. Make sure you keep open lines of communication. Solicit feedback. And make sure as a compliance officer, that you maintain visibility with your employees. Because there needs to be comfort in reporting potential problems without a fear of being pointed out or terminated. The staff needs to also be able to understand that reporting a non-compliant activity is imperative to protect the practice. Because failure to report a potential fraudulent activity is a violation of the program and it could lead to immediate termination. I always tell people, if you think it's a problem, it probably is. So with knowing that, the organization needs to put in place an accessible system for reporting appropriate or inappropriate activities and for communicating compliance questions and concerns. Your standards and procedures must emphasize that failure to report erroneous or fraudulent conduct is a violation of the compliance program and that standards and procedures also must stress that no retaliation may be taken against individuals who, in good faith, report what reasonably appears to be misconduct or a violation of the compliance program. Remember, one important strategy for nipping whistleblowers in the bud is to manage employees' complaints more effectively. Because many employee complaints that come into a compliance office either directly to the compliance officer or through other channels such as a hotline appear to be human resource problems and are typically referred to the HR department. So be careful of that because it's time for compliance officers to slow down and actually reconsider referrals to HR. Folks, listen carefully. Because employees may complain about their supervisors and how badly they treat employees, which seems like an HR issue. 
But before you refer them to HR, listen closely to what they are actually saying about the supervisor and inefficiencies and whether they could result in a compliance issue. Because if an employee is calling from the billing department and talking about management in a way that indicates the employee is pressured to get bills out the door, that may potentially mean there is the same pressure on all employees and that may be creating mistakes on the bills. We want to make sure that if a compliance violation is detected, the organization is taking all reasonable steps to respond appropriately to that violation. So take corrective action to rectify any harm resulting from current offenses and, per, and, and take the time to prevent similar offenses from occurring in the future. Remember, do not discriminate. Disciplinary action should apply to every member of the practice, regardless of position. And that needs to be stated in your written policy. And remember, the compliance officer has the obligation to follow up on any information with regard to non-compliant activities. So as I said, your responsibility as a compliance professional is to know. Don't cut corners. Don't sit on complaints that you think if you just let them simmer for a while, that they'll just go away. They don't. They never do. All right. So this brings me to the very end of today's podcast on building an effective compliance program. I do hope that you have found the information to be beneficial, to be useful, and to help you navigate the road to compliance. Again, if you have any questions, any comments, any concerns, you can always feel free to reach out to me at S-W-E-I-S-S at D-R-S-M-G-M-T dot com. Again, my name is Sean Weiss, a.k.a. The Compliance Guy, and I would like to once again thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of my podcasts. Have a great day.